good morning. Welcome to another episode of Down by Law. You are listening to the best. You're rocking with the best. Forget the rest. We are here in Lee. This is Mid City, right? When did when this be considered Mid City? We're all beautiful Xavier Campus, Xavier University, in Mid City, New Orleans. It is a HBCU, historically black college or university. Is that right, Braylon? You know, this is a this is a very very important institution because historically we as African Americans have not had the opportunity to be on equal footing from an educational standpoint. And as we all know, in 2021, education is everything. Just not institutional education, but education in general. The access to knowledge is everything. So having an institution with a history of educating young African Americans is so important. So we should never, ever lose sight of how important HBCUs are in our culture and the history of America becoming a place where there's equality. And we're going to talk a little bit about equality, um, another another issue that has affected African-Americans in a disproportionate way. We're going to talk about that because we have another one of our favorite people here in the city of New Orleans, Our one of our uh, local secrets, a uh, second-time guest, on Down by Law, Miss Andrea, Professor Andrea Armstrong of Loyola University. Round of applause. Casey, nobody heard that, but Casey's giving a round of applause <laughs> right now. 504-582-9422. You are listening to Down by Law with your host, Daryl A. Gray. I am the certified million-dollar mouthpiece of New Orleans, Louisiana. And, I'm, and you know who gave me that certification? Me. I certified myself. That's how special I feel about myself. You gotta, you gotta pat yourself on the back sometimes, Professor Armstrong. We're so happy you're here. I am so glad to be here. It is just a joy to spend time with you, Daryl. Well, listen, let me tell you, I always, I'm so proud of you being at my alma mater, uh, Loyola. You are a Yale Law graduate. I don't think people understand what that means. You're, you're basically like a, a rock star. <laughs> Isn't that fair to say? I mean, I patted myself on the back and said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a certified million dollar mouthpiece, which I, I, I am. I win money at trial. But you have to pat yourself on the back as well because you are a Yale Law graduate. That means a ton in the legal community. I mean, I, globally. I, I've been studying my work, but I also think it's important to say that these are the public school teachers who raised me. And bingo, you're right here from New Orleans. You went to public school. That means that anybody can do it mm-hmm. if properly motivated and properly supported. And that's another thing that I, I'm very, very uh, enthralled by when I hear that. Like, you are a public school graduate and you went to one, the premier. I'm going to say that. Like, between it's, you know, I know everybody says, oh, Harvard, Harvard, Harvard. Yale Law School is the oh, yeah. law school, in my opinion. We definitely have Harvard beat. <laughs> Only on Down by Law do you have an education about which school is better, Harvard or, or Yale Law School. Come on now. <laughs> Stick with us. Stick with us. Understand the importance of what we're trying to lay down, the knowledge and stuff that we're talking about. Professor Armstrong, you have, um, since you've been here last time, there has been several developments in the st- in your study, of, in, the, in, the, in your, your course of study. And, and I want to know, like, what you've been up to. You know, there's also a lot of controversial stuff going on in the city of New Orleans, like the Jailbird TV show. We want to touch on that a little bit. Uh, but I want you to update everybody on what you've been working on. Well, the, the theme of my work is really looking at how the law operates behind bars. 
right? And what we know is that it operates differently. So I've been, you know, cruising along that theme. I've been doing some writing. I have a couple of articles coming out around incarcerated labor and how the law shapes that, how it is unprotected and uncompensated. Uh, I've also looked at qualified immunity and how it applies uh, in particular to deaths uh, that are related to medical issues and, and why that doctrine is applied. So, Prof, I'm going to slow you down just a little bit because mm-hmm. I want to talk about qualified immunity, and I want to I give the people a definition of what that is and why it's important. So when a person files a, a civil rights lawsuit, for example, and they seek money damages from that police officer, let's just say it's a police case, at that point, the court doesn't even have to address first whether that constitutional right was violated, Mm. right? It's a two-part test, but Mm. they get to skip that first part. And they can go straight to the second part, which is, was that right clearly established at the time that the police officer did the thing, Mm. whatever they did that you're suing for? And so it may, in fact, have been a violation of your rights. But. But if there's not a prior case that is relatively on point, right? So the court just recently said, well, it doesn't have to be an exact match, wow. right? And so courts are trying to figure out. But unless you've got something that looks pretty similar uh, in a past case or, you know, something that's been adopted in a new law by the legislature, then courts are free to say, well, you know, whether or not it was a violation of the right, it wasn't clearly established at the time of the incident and because of that, you can't hold that police officer liable, meaning you can't get money damages. For listen, that. listen, Prof, we're going to break it down a little bit because we, we're both of the people, right? So having legal educations of uh, yours being, you know, much more profound than mine. I, I, okay, so listen. <laughs> I even know you teach at my school now. Like, I but teach I'm just at your school, right? I'm and just so, saying, but this is you your know, my graduates house. are some of the best that there are. That's I just want to be really clear. Them. Yeah, that's because you're instructing them. Come on, we, we can always tie that back. I could advocate, but I want to talk about like, let's make this real for people, right? Cause qualified immunity is for us as legal, uh, as lawyers, it's a technical thing. It's a hurdle that we have to overcome in order to get, um, an injured person compensated. But that's something that has to be dealt with throughout the uh, course of the litigation with the lawsuit. So when we talk about this qualified immunity, it applies to cases that we, are seeing a lot in the news like the George Floyd case, like Alton uh, Sterling in Baton Rouge. So you have to kind of think about that in the uh, framework of the bigger picture of a uh, police abuse situation, right? So let's kind of let's kind of dig into that and drill down a little bit so people understand what that means. Because you get these videos and it, 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 shocks, the, it shocks the soul and you say, oh, my God, that officer is so wrong. Like how, how can we not hold that person accountable? Yes, when you see it, that, that may be your uh, your knee-jerk reaction, but from a legal standpoint, there has to be an examination and a um, um, an attack from the plaintiff standpoint from the person who's su- suing on qualified immunity every single time. And it's different in different jurisdictions. There's a lot of, you know, there's case laws on it, but sometimes, you know, there's, and with the law, people have to understand there's always gray areas. Oh. That's where good lawyering comes into play. So let's kind of give people a, a, a breakdown of what that means so when you see, let's take Alton Sterling, for for example. Factually, this guy was seen on video, and the police had him down, and somehow the gun came out, and the police shot him. So what is the argument that the, the, the police officer is going to make 
against being held liable for something like that. So what they're going to say is, you know, so you we see the big picture, right? We see that somebody died or was seriously injured when they were right. interacting with the police. But in the in the courtroom, what the judge is going to be looking at is did the particular technique that that police officer used, whether it was holding them down mm-hmm. with the knee, whether it was holding them in kind of a hogtie position, whether the arms were behind the back, whether they were on their side, the very specific act that the police officer did. So it's not just bigger like the police officer shouldn't have done it that way. Right. It's that specific act. And then what what the defense attorney is going to do is say, listen, you can't find another case that or, you know, a, a law or a training that shows that Bingo. this technique is against the law. Right. I mean, we all know that police officers or prison officials, right? Because this doesn't just apply to police officers. Mm-hmm. It applies to government employees. Across right? the board. Qualified Across the board. immunity. And so this idea that, you know, we see the big picture, but that's not what the judge is looking at. The judge is looking at that particular decision or technique. Right. And to see if they can find examples of that from the past. And right. if they can find examples, well, then that police officer or prison official was on notice. Right. That what they were doing was wrong. And that's why, I mean, that's one of the justifications for qualified immunity is that we have to give uh, government employees appropriate notice of when their behavior crosses the line. Yep. And so if you can't find that technique as being particularly held, then that person is not liable for money damages. Doesn't mean there aren't some injunctive type of responses. And injunctive is usually where the police officer, I'm sorry, the uh, police department, department. often yep. will have to like implement new policies or practices, right? They'll have to make some changes, but that doesn't involve money damages to compensate the family. Absolutely. It doesn't bring that person back, the decedent or the injured person, doesn't bring them back to where they were scratched before that situation took place. And um, you're listening to Down by Law, 504-582-9422. If you're interested in joining this riveting conversation that I'm having with Professor Armstrong about now we're talking about qualified immunity, but we're going to bounce around a lot to some of the stuff she's been working on. So if ever you feel the need to call, it's 504-582-9422. Thank you, Lee. So going to qualified immunity, let's let's talk about what you just said because I want to unpack that as well for, for the listeners. Uh, let's look at the actions of that officer. Like it's a snapshot at that point, right? So somebody, let's just stay with George Floyd. Somebody is held down, and we saw the video. We knew how how bad that was. So at some point, there has to be an examination of that officer's actions in that particular instance and how it is, how is it compared compared to what, what the court is going to look at to examine if um, if that what there was a breach of the the doctrine of qualified immunity. And that goes to the training. They're, they have all of this stuff in place that we have to look at to see if, that if this officer deviated from the standard they should have held in that particular situation for every officer. So when you talk about George Floyd, for instance, holding somebody down in that position for nine minutes, um, that has, I think that when they looked at that, they felt like that was egregious and that that went past the uh, standard that was established by police protocol and procedures and rules. And I think, you know, from my understanding, there was a lot of testimony from, officials uh, in, a, in the law enforcement community in um, that state that said that. So that's why 
from the criminal standpoint that he was held liable, also from a civil standpoint, that's what justifies those money damages because you're able to breach that qualified immunity. Yeah, I mean, this is something that, that's primarily in the, the civil rights arena, right? Um, but when we think about how do you prove this, right? How do you They're show a judge? cases, They're first and difficult, foremost. And you actually have to bring it. It can be expensive oh, because you have to question. bring in experts. Experts, yeah. Right? And so you have to find an expert um, who kind of knows police training, knows police practices in in the majority of cases has been a police officer right. themselves or a super a supervising police officer, because exactly. at that point you're training down. So you're training officers on the right techniques. And that's what I thought, think we saw in George Floyd, but yeah, that's one of those things. Like the experts are, that's it's so cost prohibitive to bring cases like this because you know, who can afford to spend 20, 30, maybe $40,000 on people just to come in and give reports and testify and review evidence. Absolutely. That's it's a, a huge barrier to cases. And, and so the, the piece that I was writing about qualified immunity was saying, okay, well, this is the doctrine, and why are we applying it, for example, to decisions around, uh, you know, prison officials and whether they, you know, summon a doctor in the right amount of time or whether the doctor who's behind bars uh, provides the appropriate level of care because they're just fundamentally different decisions too, right? So qualified immunity has applied in school board decision-making. It's applied to police officers. It's applied to prisons, right? And so it it is a legally judge-created doctrine. It is not in the Constitution. <laughs> um, in some states, it has a been it's been adopted by kind of legislatures. So it's a, it's actually a law as compared a law. to a to judges kind of creating well, it's, it. It's government-based for us by us. That's that's terrifying in and of itself. But it comes out of a, a police case, out of Pearson uh, versus Ray, which is a Supreme Court case. Where what, they, year, what year was it? Oh, it was late 60s, early 70s, I want to yeah. say. I don't have the exact year on hand. That's, that's when police were, like, just legitimately just shooting people in the back as they ran away. And, like, it was like, well, I just shot them. But, you, I mean, all of this, the progeny of all of those cases and all of those incidents kind of put us in a position where now we have somewhat some, some transparency, but it's still a lot of room for, for change, I think. Well, I think it's really hard for people who aren't trained as lawyers to understand, wait a minute, we saw the thing. We know that thing was not right, right? But that doesn't necessarily translate into legal liability and accountability, Correct. which I think is the more important point, right? right. Because if they're not going to be held liable because of qualified immunity, then what's the incentive for that broader department to change? Right. Right? The idea with litigation is if you sue them and you get a huge judgment, not only are you helping the families recover, but you're also creating incentives Instead for that to department change. to do better because it doesn't want to have to pay a multi-million dollar judgment again right. in three more years. And so that's the idea of how do we hold these departments accountable? Well, one tool is litigation. But if you can't get the case through because there's all of these different technical doctrines standing between you and liability, that raises broader questions. What does it mean to have an accountable government agency? So, so in, in a lot of instances, when you have, um, you have a alarming number of incidents where people are injured or hurt, especially when you start, you know, you let's, let's swing the conversations to incarcerated people. Um, a lot of your, um, your studying and your, um, your work centers on people dying in car and in, uh, in custody. And, you know, the, the, the thing that bothers me more about that situation than anything 
you know, loss of human life is always difficult, but as lawyers, we deal with it and we understand we have to quantify that and, and uh, compare that and uh, juxtapose that to the law. Right. But the, the most telling and troubling thing for me is that a lot of these people are dying and they have not been convicted. They're the unconvicted people awaiting trial. People who couldn't make bond folks who are in those kind of situations, you know, other, and, and if they were on the streets, they could potentially get the medical treatment or the, the services that they need. So that's always something tough for me to deal with when I start to look at this kind of stuff. But I think also that we have to figure out how to make justice more transparent in the sense of when you're dealing with the actions of um, these, you know, the, the sheriff and the sheriff deputies and the police officers on the street, and then, you know, the injury is so egregious, i.e. death. You have people who can't afford. You know, you're talking about the vast majority of people can't afford to do a proper investigation to determine if there was a there was some wrongdoing by the officers, which leads to, you know, a breach of the, the standard of you can breach the standard of qualified immunity at that point, the doctrine of qualified immunity. But we don't have money to investigate these issues. So we need organizations that you work with uh, on a regular basis to kind of bring some transparency and clarity to the, to those Absolutely. issues. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, an independent kind of source for some of this information, and it doesn't have to be, it certainly doesn't have to be me, right? There, there are certain parts uh, of my job where I would be very glad if so parts of the humble. government said, you know what, we're going to collect this data and we're going to publish this data because that's our obligation because our government is ours. Yes. That's the idea of a democracy. It belongs to us. Right. And so, you know, I, I think thinking about how these institutions function and their responsibility and obligation to us, I think, is one of the most critical questions that we can ask. Yes. And, you know, the, the again, my thing is when I talk about innocent people or people who have been convicted, should I say, uh, we have you have a constitutional right to a fair and speedy trial. Uh, you're innocent until proven guilty. You know, all of these rights that are bestowed upon us through the Constitution, and the Constitution is, is a hard and fast holding die. It's, it's fluid, but it holds fast in terms of how it establishes our rights. And it's like you said earlier, it's so difficult to change. We need to make sure that when there are uh, aspects of the Constitution that protect human rights, that we really, really, really champion those situations. And uh, the rights of incarcerated people, I think, is especially now in today's society, the forefront of that kind of, you know, that's, that's, that's where the work is left to be done. And I, I hear you about people who were pretrial and who were in jails and who died. That's 14% of the deaths, by the way, in Louisiana, right? So 14 in, in the prisons, 14% in, uh, that's across prisons, jails, and juvenile detention centers. Wow. But what I also want to tell you is those other deaths, right? So 86% of the deaths, those include people who were not sentenced to death by a judge, right? So we have a whole variety of crimes, right? We've got a criminal code that's got over 600 different provisions. right? So you could have somebody who died behind bars for purse snatching, right? But you could also have somebody who died behind bars because they committed an aggravated rape. And, and my point being that regardless of what crime you committed, you may be held in the same facility, and you were subject to the same conditions. And so your risk of death should not depend on which facility you just happen to be serving your sentence in. Because what we know from the data is that some facilities have more deaths than others. 
Mm. And so the point is trying to figure out, well, like uh, St. Martin Parish, they, they haven't had a death, right? Tensas Parish Jail has not had a death in that five-year period. What are they doing that these other jails are maybe not doing where they don't have any deaths in that place at all, regardless of whether what somebody was convicted or not, right? The people that we convict, they are on death row, and that is a a judge that's, and a jury a, decision that a, they should die for their crime. But we yeah, don't have that for mm. all of these other deaths. That's a, I think that's a that's a different. We we could talk about that as well, like criminal justice reform and how you know the vast majority of people are incarcerated for nonviolent offenses. That's something completely separate that we need to discuss as well, because I think you know reform and and reentry and having programs for people to get back to society is a whole lot more important than holding their bodies, especially when you start talking about the lack of proper uh, health care and things of that nature. They could, that when, if they were free on the streets, they would have access to, but you're, you know, you're trapping their bodies so they can't really um, care for themselves. I mean, I think there's a lot of different points to get at with, with this, right. Depending on where you're at. But for me, you know, there are definitely kind of moral and rights issues, but it's also an economics issue, right? We've got 70-year-old men. We have one of the oldest prison populations in the country. The average age is 40, right? And we know that, one, as you get older, your medical needs, they're going to increase. We see this with our grandmas. I see it with myself a little bit, right? Every time you get older, is going to cost more. Yes. And so our prisons are holding 70-year-old men who have immense medical needs, as one does at age 70, mm. um, and we are paying for it as a society. And I think the question is, does that really make us safer? It doesn't. I don't think it does. That's why I say we got to have some alternatives at this point. I mean, there has to be a certain level of compassion and rehabilitation. How are you rehabilitating a 70-year-old person? I mean, it should have been done. I understand. I mean, it's it's a lot of moving parts to it. it. Is. But I want to, like, let's, let's, let's break it down a little bit because you said it's, there's some parishes or some – um, uh, institutions that don't have any deaths, whereas they have some like East Baton Rouge that had at least the probably the nation, huh? Is it well, one it, of the it, it is the deadliest jail in Louisiana, okay. uh, and we know that Louisiana also um, is a leader nationally in terms of uh, prison and jail deaths. Wow. So it is up there, uh, but I don't have the mot- mortality rate information. Gotcha. In part because you need the population info. To get that. It's a lot of raw data to, it's a to lot assess. Of raw data. So, so just what jumps out to you right now, like in terms of the, the, the prisons or the jails that don't have any deaths as opposed to the ones that, that have a tremendous amount of uh, disturbing amount, is it just the population in general or what is it? What are they doing differently? The staff and the, and the sheriff in those particular instances? Well, that's the question that I'm, I'm moving to now. So I don't have an answer for you that, right? Okay. So in June, we just kind of, compiled all this data and figured out, right, so that it's not just every single jail, but that there are particular jails where we have more deaths than others. And so the question now is, well, what are those policies and practices? And we're starting to request those uh, from all the jails, uh, including those that had zero deaths, to try and figure out what's different in those places. It could be the healthcare provider. It could be the culture of the facility, mm-hmm. right? Um, it could be the training that's provided. There's a lot of different Damn. pieces of it yeah. that influence the money. Yes, staffing may be an issue. You know, it's, it's a lot of stuff you got to look at. That's it's going to be interesting to, uh, to discover what you well to look at what you guys discover as you uh, analyze that because there's so many moving parts. But you know, with that study, then you put you put us in a position where we could 
make a decision and there's some transparency, which is what all of your work is about. Just us knowing we, we have an issue and us knowing like, Hey, this is what we can do to change this stuff. And these are, this is, some, these are some of the reasons that we're seeing this uh, mortality rate that we see here in Louisiana, which is very, very disturbing. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm, I'm very interested to see how all of this stuff shakes out for you. Uh, how many students you got working with you? Uh, I have 20 students who work with me on this project. That's a lot. It's a lot, but they are amazing. They are committed. They work hard. Wow. Uh, each of them is talking to about anywhere between seven and 10 different sheriffs across the state. Wow. And asking questions, you know, sometimes uh, <laughs> sheriffs are very cooperative and sometimes they are not. Um, and so, you know, they are developing the skills that they need as lawyers, right, to be advocates, to be seekers of truth. Uh, but also, how do you do that? Right. right. Um, and they they do that and then they do some investigations as well. That's amazing. This is an amazing project. Like, I don't I don't know if people understand the importance and the relevance and of what you guys are doing. What's the name of the website? Give us the website. It's incarceration transparency dot org. So when I log on to, to incarceration transparency, what am I going to see like? I know y'all, that's a database essentially, right? There is. Well, I mean, the first page that you see is actually a map of Louisiana, and we call it a heat map of deaths. And so you can see just by color coding which parishes have the highest numbers of deaths. Mm. You can click on any parish and get information for your specific parish on who has died uh, behind facility. You can pull the documents that we received from each of those facilities. Um, and then there's some analysis of the deaths, right? So, you know, we are we are lawyers. Uh, we collect information, but I hope that there's some enterprising PhD student out there that wants to download the data and do even more, more yeah, and do even more with it. Uh, and then we'll be launching a new section on November 1st as well. So, what's going to be in a new section? The new section is called In Memoriam, and it is. Uh, stories and um, excerpts about the people who have died in the New Orleans jail. And so what my students have been doing is from our from our database, pulling names and then trying to find family members, friends, teachers, pastors, neighbors, uh, and interview them to learn more about who that person was. Humanizing those those names that they're not just yeah. they're just not names. They're people they had, you know, they had an effect on on society uh, whether big or small. So that's very important. You know, that's, that's one of the things that I always try to focus on with my clients. You know, when you're talking to a jury, I'm just not coming in there, coming into this courtroom and just asking you guys for money, which is what everybody thinks. You're just asking for money, but there's a human story behind the, my client, the sit, the, the defendant, everybody like this is a human situation that we have to really know. Like we have to feel it and see what it's all about. And doing that, for people who have died in, in, in jail and in custody is very important because that's a real loss. That's a human life. It's a human life. And, it, and it's a loss, not just to their family and friends, but to their community. Right. And so when the sheriff's office will issue a press release, and this is most sheriff's office, mm-hmm. right? It'll put the person's name, their charge and discuss their crime. Come on. But it won't necessarily say that. So one of the examples, Narada Measley, like, he had just had a big win at work, had just gotten a new job, right? And so he was about to be able to provide for his baby's daughter, right? That's and crazy. so, like, trying to understand how these lives are both interrupted and who they leave behind um, is part of why we should care about what happens because people are so much more 
than their charge um, and impacts families for generations. Putting the, putting the face to a very serious situation and, and very serious uh, problem that we need to solve. This is Down by Law, if you just tuned in, 504-582-9422. We are listening to national leader, a national thought leader on um, incarceration and um, deaths in, and while people are in custody, Professor Andrea Armstrong of Loyola University, well-educated, well-published, Published, and she is a uh, phenom here in New Orleans that we need to champion and make sure that everybody knows how wonderful she is. Um, Professor Armstrong, yes. let's talk about Jailbirds on Netflix. Mm. I've <laughs> I watched I, I watch TV on on the weekends, and sometimes I look at Netflix. I like to binge watch stuff. Mm-hmm. So. I was flipping through um, Netflix and I saw Jailbirds. I'm like, oh, okay. And then I said, New Orleans. I said, what is this? I hadn't watched it yet, though. What's go- it's, it's a controversy surrounding this thing. What's going on with it? It is. So uh, it appears that in early 2020, uh, the New Orleans jail allowed a television production company to come in and essentially film a quote-unquote reality show. And I say that because this particular company has a reputation for staging drama in order for the reality TV, right? Um, And so it's not just a documentary in that sense, but instead it is one of these produced reality shows focusing on women who are uh, pretrial and being held uh, in the jail. And it's a three-episode series, um, the sheriff ultimately uh, cut the production and prohibited the company from coming back. Uh, but there's some really disturbing aspects uh, to this whole enterprise. And I think one of the, the most astonishing things is that no one knew about this uh, in terms of the public mm. uh, until the trailers launched. And, and that's, um, that's significant. The sheriff has a unique responsibility for the people in his custody. Um, and that is a, a responsibility that he wields on behalf of us. Right. And so the question is, you know, if you're being held against your will in some building, uh, is that really an appropriate, uh, is that an appropriate thing to do is to film them? Uh, not to mention, and you and I as lawyers know this, right? All of these people have pending cases. Whenever, it, I don't know if anybody who's listening has gotten a phone call from a jail, but it, there is a warning that starts that says every word will be recorded. Right. 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 And, but you've got people in their living spaces. They may be talking about their cases. They may be talking about exactly. And all of this is on film. And so, you know, there are unique issues around they're represented by lawyers. Right. And so <laughs> for example, if I'm represented by a lawyer and I'm being detained in the jail, the prosecutor can't just come down to the jail and interview right. me. And talk to right. me about my case without first talking to my lawyer, right? And following the guidelines that are set out by my lawyer, by my advocate. It's unclear at this point, right? We've gotten some conflicting statements about to what extent people were allowed to consult with their lawyer. There, there's some other issues as well, but um, it is certainly something that I think we should know more about as a society. Yeah, I, I would be interested to see 
what um, releases, consent forms that the uh, inmates who were filmed or who participated in this in this show, what did they sign? And how were they advised before they signed these documents? Um, it's, that's a very, very fascinating thing because, you know, that's not unique to New Orleans or Orleans Parish. That happens across the country. Like, you know, they have these these reality TV shows and our documentaries because, you know, we consider documentaries to be a little bit more serious than a, a semi-scripted reality TV show. But uh, when you take those steps and you go into a situation like that when there's so many legal ramifications that can come out of this situation, what are you doing to protect those individuals who, who elect, quote-unquote, elect to participate in that in that TV show? So that's, I mean, there are some legal ramifications there civilly I think that could potentially come out of that situation. I don't know. I think it's I think it's very fascinating. I think it'll be um somewhat of a first impression situation as well. I mean what I'll say is, you know, and I spend a lot of time in different jails and prisons, that is never the highest moment of a person's life. Right. You are filming them at the worst possible moment of their life. And none of us would necessarily volunteer for that. Right? But then when you are in that worst moment where you have very few choices, where you have zero control over your daily life, you know, the way you make choices is skewed. You may choose to do things yeah. thinking, okay, well, this will be my big moment. This is going to help me somehow later down the line, or at least it's better than sitting in my cell. Right. Right. I think the other issues are we know, and, and this is something that we've been spending a lot of time on. There are high rates of, of mental illness in our jail population. We know that when we, when we closed all of our mental health hospitals in the city of New On Orleans, the they ended up in our jail. Right. And so th- there's this exploitative feeling around some of this stuff. People at their lowest moments, they may be suffering from mental illness. They don't have a lot of choices. And then here comes a bright, shiny camera. Right. Attention. Something you've probably never had in your life, you know, when you deal with people with mental illness and people from a certain segment of society, the value that they may put on being on TV, you know, that's it's that's that's such a complicated and and deep subject matter that it needs to really be investigated. You know, we talk about mental health a lot on this show, but because I think it's a it's a subject in our community that we don't discuss enough. But when you talk about mental health and incarceration and you know that that again goes to that to that um, nonviolent offender kind of deal, yeah. and people not getting provided the proper health care and 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 what they need when they're incarcerated. Mm-hmm. You know, just because you you know you having when you're dealing with somebody who has mental health issues, there needs to be some kind of programming in place for them to get the treatment that they need in jail, and that's going to change. Like you you might not have some of these people on this show if that's something that they're dealing with. I mean, I think also the context is really important, right? So right now the jail is under a federal consent decree, and yet this still happened. Right now, uh, the city and the sheriff are in court about um, excuse me <clears throat> about phase three, which is this proposed new jail building, which, um, I mean, until, you know, a couple of years ago, this sheriff's office was saying it's going to be a 750-bed facility. Mm-hmm. It is now proposed as an 89-bed facility primarily for mental health needs. And wow. so if Phase 3 is built, does that mean that we're also okay with reality TV shows being filmed inside of this new building? 
And if phase three, like we are already having issues with training and staffing up the existing building and we don't have the time to necessarily, or we don't have the resources in order to be fully providing the types of programming Mm -hmm. that you're talking about, but we do have the resources to facilitate a six member camera crew and a team. So it just raises a lot of questions. And so I think some open conversations about why this happened and also, you know, why maybe it shouldn't have happened because we can learn from these lessons. Right. You know, and one of the things that, that I always consider when I think about OPP is that historically there has been one of the um, sore spots in, in, in Orleans Parish, you know, from way back in 1800s when I think I read something about the, the prisoners were being held with hogs and treated like animals and things of that nature, even up until, you know, the seventies before this, this, you know, precedes Sheriff Guzman, which, you know, just to be fair, um, a lot of people have said that he's made some marked changes and especially operating under the federal decree and all of this stuff. That's a very tough job to change a, a prison with such a history of problems. It's an incredible history. I mean, I just want to point out that we didn't have a full-time health or medical doctor do an intake until the 1990s. That's insane. We had, I mean, so if someone was HIV positive, uh, they had to wear a electronic stun belt to court, which a deputy could just push the button on uh, to the extent that they moved out of line or somehow acted in a way that, that the officer thought was incorrect, the right? And so we perceived to be a problem. So he we hit have, him with a stun, a stun belt. How insane is that? <laughs> we have come a long, wow. long way from from that, and I think that's really important to recognize. Doesn't mean that we are done yet, right? Um, and there are some real problems in how we uh, recruit and train and retain staff. Yes, to make sure that that building is safe and how we provide health care. That says, I mean, it, that we were still talking about money, like that all goes back to funding and things of that nature, how it was being allotted and allocated in those situations. Mm-hmm. You know, healthcare, and let's talk. Let's let's circle back to jailbirds just a minute. Mm-hmm. Jail the jailbird focuses on or jailbirds focuses on female uh, inmates, right? Correct. And you talk about healthcare and and female in, inmates, like. Where are we with that? Like we, you know, that's that's an archaic situation nationally, I think, when it comes to dealing with um, and taking care of incarcerated individuals. There is. I mean, it, you know, women, um, because historically they have been such a smaller proportion of the prison population. it's changing rapidly. It is changing. It is changing. We're seeing uh, increasing rates of women being held and in, for increasingly serious crimes. Uh, but what I, what I want to say is these systems were designed, I mean, they were designed for men, right? They were not designed for women. And so there's been several studies that have looked at like discipline behind bars and how that looks different for women than it does for men, um, increasingly Mm. harsher. Um, you know, when we think about, uh, healthcare, right, there are certain visits, uh, as a woman and certain tests that you have to receive at certain ages. Uh, and it's a question, are women receiving those types of care, right? Do they have access to qualified doctors who specialize in medicine and treatment for women? Um, so I'm actually uh, helping with um, a task force that is being led by Lift Louisiana and Louisiana Public Health Institute. 
um, along with um, the uh, Birth Collective, and they are looking specifically at, as asked by the legislature, to examine health care for women um, in all Louisiana prisons and jails. And so we're doing that study now and should have a report, um, I believe it's due uh, the legislative session in 2023, to help them better understand the challenges and also the ways for improvement. Well, you know, and as like you said, it's, it's very it's very interesting that you have a such a large and fast growing segment of of the incarcerated population. But, you know, what what do they do? Like if somebody if somebody's having a complicated pregnancy or a complicated birth, which is, you know, an emergency situation, I would I would assume. What do they do now to deal with those kind of situations? So unfortunately, I mean, I can only really point to anecdotal evidence, right? Which is in Jefferson Parish, at least two women have given birth alone in their cells after calling for help and banging on the door, one of whom miscarried into the cell toilet, the other who gave birth on the cell toilet. And uh, according to them, they said that they told the officers, the guards who would pass by, that they were in labor, that they needed help, that they were having pains. And uh, the guards essentially laughed at them and said that they weren't really in labor. And so these are real questions. Wow. Um, this is about training for the guards to, to identify what are the signs of labor, what are the signs of fetal distress. Right. Um, you know, one of, one of those women that I'm, that I'm talking about, thankfully, uh, baby was born safe. Um, baby is healthy today. She is healthy today, but that wasn't the case for the other woman. Yeah. And then, I mean, I think that's actionable in in that instance, because I think all of the stuff that you're talking about, this isn't, you know, this is new. When, when women are uh, pregnant, they have to have a certain level of care that's, um, that has to be considered. And if you have that person in custody, you know, you need to be acutely aware of some of the complications, just like you talked about. And if those training steps aren't being taken, then obviously, you know, you, I think when you start, when you go back to qualified immunity, that's, that's the examination you have to, you have to uh, go through to determine if that particular law enforcement officer or facility didn't do what needed to be done. That that was, didn't do what was reasonably expected of them to do. Um, and you know, I think right off the top of my head, it, it becomes a situation where you're like, if you're pregnant, they should be in a separate facility that, um, provides all of the different coverages and the training trained, uh, law enforcement officers are, um, are jailers to identify some of the stuff you just talked about. Or we think about, uh, whether they're really a danger to public safety and need to be held behind bars at all while they are pregnant and giving birth. Right. So the, the women that I'm talking about, they were pretrial. Right. They mm. were pretrial. And so I, it's hard. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not trying to hide the dangers. It is hard for a sheriff who runs a 1,000-bed facility who has only maybe 15 women in custody, one of whom is pregnant, to, to ensure that all the guards are familiar with all of the different protocols right. and needed things. At the same time, we can't move her to a centralized facility just of pregnant women because that takes her away from her lawyer. That takes her away from her pending court case where she has to mm. show up for regular hearings. Mm. Um, it takes her away from her family and friends who might support be supporting and visiting her. And so 
for some of these cases, uh, we certainly need to reevaluate whether if you are eight months pregnant, how much of a danger are you going to be to, to public safety? Right. Um, and how likely are you to flee from the court? And if it's not, if the charges are not as serious, right, and we don't have a, a extensive criminal record, then there's some significant arguments that maybe they, maybe they deliver at home and then, dependent on their court case, serve their sentence as appropriate after the baby has weaned. Right? It sounds like a wonderful argument to make to a judge if I'm a criminal defense attorney, why my client should not be held in custody under her current physical conditions. And I think that I think that translates to different different um people who have been charged with crimes, like older people. You know, it's a lot of different stuff you have to consider. And that, you know, that puts it put the onus on the, the court and making a decision as to how they want to approach it. If you know that the facilities that are available won't meet that person's health needs. But the health needs have to be they have to be advocated for. And how often do you see that? Because again you start talking about we're dealing with poor people. Who do they have advocating for them to make those kind of arguments? And then it falls back to um, the government and, and the organizations you work with, the the, um, the nonprofits and things of that nature, to bring some transparency to these issues. And all of this isn't to negate whatever harm that individual person did. Yeah, of course right? not. Of course not. Um, you know, I mean, I think what is important, though, is understanding that every single person involved, both the person who was the victim of that particular crime as well as the person who was incarcerated, they are somebody's son their auntie, Correct. their uncle, they belong to somebody. Um, and recognizing the humanity of both sides doesn't negate what happened or that some form of, of both redemption and um, kind of punishment may be needed. Right, right. right. But we can still say, even in that process, we're going to hold true to understanding that there are basic moral and human rights um, that you still possess. Correct. And that's, that's, that's the, that's the end all of the beginning and the end of the whole situation. We're dealing with human beings. You know, we're not dealing with animals. We're not, you know, some people will say that you can't even treat animals like that. So, you know, if you can't treat animals like that, if their argument is valid. then of course you have to take into consideration the human rights aspect aspects to incarceration and healthcare and things of that nature. And, you know, the rise of the women's, um, incarceration percentage and population really begs the question of, is it time for true reform in healthcare for um, incarcerated people? You know, and that's where we are. Like this is, you know, this is great information for everybody because if you think about it, especially in our culture, everybody knows somebody who's, who has been in jail. You know, that's just a part of, of being black in America for the most part. We know or somebody black in New Orleans, right? Oh, absolutely. Black in New Orleans. You know, when you start talking about an urban center similar to this, that that's just a that's a everyday occurrence, and you don't want and you know somebody's in jail like man that person has diabetes they're gonna you know they're not gonna get their medicine yada 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 simple stuff like that that can lead to s- such uh, profound issues when they're in jail because they don't have any control over their situation. It's tough. Like let's talk about how how COVID has affected the incarcerated mm-hmm. population. You know from from my understanding and the stuff that I saw like you know with being in close confines with other people and somebody tests positive, like it's a, the rates are higher in jail than they are here on, you know, when you're when you're in the free world, should I say? Yeah. So there's been some great work nationally on this that shows that being incarcerated raises your probability of getting COVID by five and a half times. Wow. 
We also know that black and brown populations are disproportionately incarcerated. And so you, you take those two together. And what that means is that black communities in particular are disproportionately uh, impacted by COVID, not just in the free world, but also in the incarcerated world. That's a, it's, it's such a, it's such a telling statistic. Like, you know, numbers tell, I always tell, tell, I tell people all the time, I'm such a data junkie because you have to have, the numbers in front of you, because those that you know those are facts, and then you take the problem or the issue that you're dealing with, and you compare it against the numbers, and you kind of figure out what the issues are. And yeah. that data means means everything, but you have to do something with it. And think about it: all of these people are behind bars; they're not coming and going, right? No. And so, how is it getting into the facility? That's where we really need to think about incentives and rules around vaccination. Uh, for the staff who enter, right? right, Because they are the potential carriers of this disease that if it gets inside, it can run like wildfire. It can, the same way COVID can overstrap our hospital system, right? right? Where they say, don't even come to the ER. We don't have beds. Mm. Same thing happens behind bars, but there they've only got 10 beds, right? Um, That, that's all they got. And so the, the dangers that we have on the outside that we talk about, all of those apply equally behind bars as well. Yes, that's, that's man. It's some, it's some really difficult stuff when you're dealing with, and I'm, I'm like I'm very appreciative of the work that you're doing. Um, I want to before we get out of here, I want to talk about uh, the hurricane evacuation issues. You know, tell us a little bit about what you've what you've seen in that and, and the effects of it on the uh, incarcerated population. So, I mean, I think we all remember from Katrina, right, where we saw them um, sitting on the overpass over on Broad Street uh, in the sun, you know, no water, people talking about how they lost everything, people talking about how they had been in their cells with water coming up to their chest um, and really locked in. And so I think it's really important to say that we we did, in New Orleans at least, learn some lessons from that. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and now there are rules around, you know, what type of category it is and whether there has to be an evacuation. But the fact of the matter is there are plenty of parishes, or in fact, there were two parishes after Ida that were under mandatory evacuation order. So everybody who was free was required to evacuate, but the jails themselves did not evacuate. And the question is, well, you know, should there be some sort of state rule around when you have to evacuate one and then two, if you evacuate, where do you evacuate to? And what are the different ways that we make sure that people's families, lawyers are all notified about where that person ends up? Right. Um, you know, thinking about, you know, where we're going to put folks. Right. So after Katrina, people were just scattered. They were scattered across the state. It, I was one of those um, attorneys who was like calling all the facilities, just trying to find people. Uh, but you know, we did it a little differently here, but there's real, you know, there's reports from people who were, um, evacuated that the conditions that they were evacuated to were problematic. And, you know, that's, that's one of those things, like you said, there has to be, there has to be a plan. And from what I understand, they had people in, in, I guess they moved them to like, uh, Angola. We went to Angola from Orleans Parish, right? Correct. So from Orleans Parish went to Angola. Um, but you know, I mean, so there's issues about where they were housed at Angola. Did they have access to showers? Were there COVID protocols? Did they have food contact with families? There's also uh, youth detention facilities, right? So kids were evacuated to adult facilities. Wow. 
And even though they were housed separately, there are unique risks um, inherent inherent risk. in that. And we treat kids differently, and rightly so. And so we need to think about what are the things that should go with them uh, to where they're evacuated and the rights of their parents to know where their kids are being sent. Uh, there's also those that just didn't evacuate at all, held them there. Um, and you have to think about, okay, well, yes, they may have power, but can staff get there to provide the necessary services? Does staff abandon the post? Because a lot of times people are like, I'm not going to work. I'm, I'm going to take care of my family. I'm not worried about people Which in, is in, an understandable yeah, decision. 100%. <laughs> One hundred percent. Yes, yes. You have right. there has to be a contingency plan, and you know, again, that goes back to to the idea of like we just need to have more transparency in the um, prison systems here in Louisiana and across the nation. So, you know, we got a couple of minutes. We're gonna get out of here. I want I want you to talk about you know the stuff that you're working on and what what we can expect from you over the next couple of months. And I want I want everybody to you know hear, hear about the website again so they know how to. Go, go and do this. Go do the research on their own. So November 1st, we're going to launch a new, uh, two new sections, in fact, of our website. Uh, one is the in memoriam section where we um, where we share the lives of people who have died in the New Orleans jail, who they were beyond their charge. Uh, and, and those are really beautiful. It includes poems and pictures. And my students track down like a librarian in New Jersey who found some yearbooks. I mean, some wow. really, you know, some really strong work Deep by my stuff. students. Um, the other section that we're launching is data that I've just uh, been collecting forever, which is uh, deaths in the New Orleans jail in particular since 1877. Uh, so every death that I have been 1877. able to 1877, every death that I've been able to track. Um, mm. And I think it's important for historical purposes Absolutely. to understand that it's not just a snapshot uh, and all of that is available or will be available on November 1st uh, at www.incarcerationtransparency.org. Um, in addition to the database and the analysis um, that's already up there. What classes are you teaching this year? So I'm teaching incarceration law and policy right now. Uh, and next semester I'll be teaching law and poverty. Okay. Outstanding. Professor Armstrong. We want to thank you again for being a guest here on Down by Law. It was a very informative conversation again, a second part to the first conversation, updates and all of the good stuff. We we will definitely have you back again because you just keep working. We got to keep up. <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys for listening to another episode of Down by Law. I'm your host, Daryl A. Gray. I will see you next week. Thank you. <laughs>